is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then use it as an excuse to argue about shit. I'm Anthony Johnston. And I'm Brian Latendry, and today we're listening to the 1993 album Turn Loose the Swans from doom metal veterans My Dying Bride. Mm, and they weren't veterans when this was released. This is a very early in the doom metal movement. So I'm, I you know, no spoilers, don't tell me yet, but I'm really looking forward to uh, hearing what you thought about this because it, it was a seminal album. I mean, you know, to many people, myself included to an extent, it's kind of the doom metal album there was doom metal before this album there was doom metal before my dying bride but this like i say it's seminal this really kind of crystallized the movement and the sound and the genre um so yeah really really important album to me um but before we get to the album let's have a bit of follow-up the first thing i want to say uh is that as of recording we just opened a facebook group yes we did so if you want to go and uh, chat to other listeners and us on Facebook, we are at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out, as you might expect. Uh, and uh, yeah, we'll pop in there from time to time and, you know, hopefully we can build a little little community there. Yes. And I think it was Don Cardenas that had reached out about whether or not that was something was. we were interested in doing, right? So, um, you know, kudos to him for, for suggesting that. I think... Uh, What's interesting about the Facebook thing is that, you know, like for Secret Identity, for the comics show that I do, we had message boards for years, and that was the place that people went to talk about the show. And then we ended up opening a Facebook group, and almost everyone from the boards migrated over to the Facebook group, I think just because it's a place where they are anyways. Right, right. See, that's the thing. I don't, I'm not a big Facebook user, so opening a Facebook group just never even occurred to me. Mm. Um and I had no idea that groups were even a thing. I, I know that pages are kind of, uh, because of Facebook's buggering about with algorithms of exactly. what you see in your feed and trying to get you to pay for promoted posts and all that, pages are pretty much dead now. But apparently groups aren't. Apparently groups are a thing. So so now we've got one. Hey. <laughs> yep. And you put all of the episodes that we have so far up as separate posts on that page. So if people are just catching up to the show now, if they're just listening to past episodes, there is a basically a post on each one of those. So you can go and leave your thoughts, and, and we frequently pull, we'll be pulling from this as well to uh, bring some feedback to the show. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll do that with each episode is, you know, same as I do on Tumblr and on Patreon. You know, I'll generate a new post for, uh, well, and I do on my own Facebook actually as well, but I'll do it in the group now as well. I'll, you know, generate a post for each new episode. Awesome. Um, the one thing I wanted to ask you, because I don't know if we've talked about this for the past few weeks, but there's a ton of metal albums coming out right now. And there's been a few in recent weeks that I've picked up. But as we head into September, you have the Iron Maiden just came out this week. I have not listened to it yet, but it, it just dropped in the past week. And then on the 11th, we have Slayer coming out. But have you picked up any new albums lately that you've been listening to for metal? The only new one that I've got, again, as of time of recording, is Genexus, the new Fear Factory. Oh, and what did you think? Because I listened to that. I gave that one listen so far. Uh, I've only listened to it once as well. And on first listen, I really liked it. But, yep, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll need to listen to it again to sort of get more into it. But yeah, it was, uh, uh, yeah, you know, it, it's kind of it, it, all the politics around what's happened with band members leaving and being fired and stuff is unfortunate uh because i thought the original core of like you know herrera and christian alderwalbers on bass and stuff was was a great i mean clearly they produced some absolutely classic albums and it's a shame that how things have gone down over there but 
yeah, so far, I would say Genexus feels... I, I don't like the phrase return to form. I yeah. try to avoid using it wherever possible. But there's not many other ways you can describe this. It f- sounds like demanufacture version two, almost. Yeah, I really dug it. They had a whole thing where they were streaming the first, the whole album live. You could go listen to it, and it might even still be up. And it was, it was not a, uh, it was not a bootleg thing. They actually put it up. Right. The, their record company put it up for people to listen to, and and I was uh, pleasantly surprised. I was never a huge Fear Factory person, but um, I know I, I like them a lot. So I was glad to, and you know, some of their more recent albums have felt a bit kind of by the numbers, uh, but this album feels re-energized. The one that I recently picked up that I just wanted to give a quick shout out to is uh, former members of Megadeth, Chris Broderick, who was the most recent guitar player, and uh, Sean Drover, who was the most recent drummer, started a new band after they quit Megadeth last year, and they didn't waste any time in putting out a, a first album for this band. And uh, the uh, the band is called Act of Defiance, and the album is called The Birth and the Burial, I believe it's called. And if you are a thrash fan, then it's definitely worth checking out. I mean, it's pretty... I don't think they're reinventing the wheel on this album, but you can see that they had a lot of stuff that they were, I think, hoping to work into a Megadeth record at some point in time, but that's not really Dave's style to <laughs> to let other people sort of create stuff for it. So there's a lot of stuff that you could hear maybe could have worked in some way, shape, or form on a Megadeth album, but also uh, it's much heavier. And there's a lot of stuff that you you can tell that those guys just sort of had kicking around you know, as ideas for a long time, and they built some pretty cool songs around it. So, Act of Defiance definitely worth checking out. And then, uh, I, I think the up- name, the mere name, Act of Defiance, kind of tells you all you need exactly. to know about that situation, yep. doesn't it? <laughs> and you were mm-hmm. right, by the way. The album's called Birth and the Burial, and they and they go between um, sort of the the more growly lyrics and some clean singing. But it's it's uh, it's an interesting album. And, and Chris Broderick, man. He's he's an amazing guitar player, so it's, it's worth checking out just to sort of hear what happens when he can do whatever he wants, mm-hmm. you know. Which is always interesting to me whenever uh, people leave a band and then sort of start their own side project. Like you all, how's you it going to sound? Yeah, exactly. Like now that they're unchanged, so to speak, from whatever the you know parameters were of their previous band, what is it going to be like? So uh, definitely worth checking out. And then I picked up the new Disturbed album, which is, what's interesting about I haven't heard that yet. Now what? Just overall, because maybe we'll do an episode on them at some time. Oh, well, most certainly. Yeah, I like Disturbed, yeah. Oh, okay, good. I like Disturbed, too. And I think it's amusing that they almost have this... People love to hate them. Oh, they have the stench of new metal. They absolutely know, do. New with an umlaut metal over them. That's the thing, because of when they came out and the sort of, uh, you know, um, Dave Draymond's style of sort of quasi-rapping vocals and stuff so everybody just associates right, his cadence with is one that they right. i think people like to to basically say that uh you know that means that that, that they sound the, all their songs sound the same or, or whatever but right, which uh, is bullshit obviously but so i wanted to oh here's the fact i wanted to pull up about disturb because this is what i wanted to mention about the album they are only the third group to score five consecutive number one debuting albums wow you want to know uh, the other of two? A, of any genre, not just metal. We're talking yep. any genre. Wow. Okay, go on. Third group to score five consecutive number one albums because this new album, Immortalized, debuted number one on the Billboard 200 chart in the US. Mm-hmm. One is not surprising, Metallica. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, debuting uh, 1991 to 2008, they had five consecutive number one albums. So I'm assuming that was the Black Album on Forward? 
Probably, yeah. yeah. Yeah, probably. Uh, and the other one is the Dave Matthews Band. Really? Wow. From 1998 to 2012. Wow. I mean, I, I would, you know, most people would go, oh, the Beatles, but the Beatles, no, because their albums were so sort of, they lost so many fans when they went strange and hippified. Um, uh, but, you know, I would have thought maybe Elvis or something, right. but Dave Matthews Band, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Third group to score five consecutive number one debuting studio albums. So that's pretty freaking amazing. And uh, that is crazy. You know, people people love to hate Undisturbed, but a lot of people buy those albums. So yeah. Yeah, <laughs> even wow. if it's not your cup of tea, there is certainly a large audience out there for Disturbed. And uh, and I do enjoy their music. And I would say on the new one, it's uh, they've got a few surprises on there because they definitely have a sound. Oh, and yeah, sure. I don't think they yeah. stray too far from that sound on this album, but they make a couple of interesting choices that I thought kept it interesting. And um, if you like Disturbed, you will like this album for sure. So those are sort of two of the newer things that I've been listening to. I know that Iron Maiden is out. I will definitely be listening to that. And then I'm, I cannot wait to get my hands on the new Slayer. And then October is going to be just a killer month for, for new music. So, But we can talk about that in an upcoming show. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, just one more thing, and that's I think you had some feedback you wanted to go through. I did have some feedback because our Queensryche episode came out, which was the two-hour epic that it was our it was sort of our Lord of the Rings of uh, you know. I think episodes. yeah, it was Max Schumann called it that, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, he did. Which it took me a minute to say, what is he? Oh, it's, it's the Lord of the Rings episode. It's the one that takes forever. Um, so uh, our friend John Stetson said, began listening to this today. Began listening to this today. Mm. I like that. Uh, on my afternoon commute, so glad you two chose to do this album. This album is my t- is in my top ten all time. Two fantastic guitar players, Chris DeGarmo and Michael Wilton, are extremely underrated when it comes to guitar duos. He said, "Really listen to the solos. The melodies are beautiful. Jeff Tate is a freak of nature with range maybe only a few other singers have." He said, "Don't get me wrong. Many vocalists can hit high notes, but no one has the power and delivery that Jeff Tate has. Maybe Rob Halford, maybe Michael Sweet." and the singer from Steelheart, but he couldn't think of any else off the top of his head. He said, as a person, I'm not a fan of Jeff Tate, as I feel he and his wife destroyed Queensryche, but as a musician, he is top-notch. And then he went on to guess what some of your favorite tracks were, and you guys had a bit of a back and forth uh, uh, on the Patreon page there. But yeah, so it's clearly for him one of his top 10 all-time albums. Yeah. Um, well, and actually his guess is, I mean, I'll say this now because by the time he hears this, I'm sure he has actually listened to the episode and he wasn't that far off, actually. Uh, it was, uh, yeah, that was quite astute. So clearly I am, you know, you can read me like a book. I'm transparent. <laughs> yep. Uh, Matt Mason said, listening to this made me realize just how little I care about lyrics. Metal is all about attitude, power, energy, and feeling for me. Might have to start paying more attention, he said. And that to me was a wonderful sort of place to think about how you approach metal because Mm. we all approach it from a different place like there are there are certainly uh, there are metal fans who value each individual piece of that music differently you know some people are not lyric people some people could care less uh you know for me riffs and melodies are very important things to me um uh it but it also depends on the band there are other bands that i that i really enjoy what they're going to bring to the table lyrically, you know, back in the right. in the sort of really when Dave Mustaine and Megadeth was really on top of stuff in terms of his lyrics, and you know, I would sort of say in the middle of their career, I really like to see what his, you know, what he was sort of bringing to the table. But uh, 
But yeah, for others, it's just about the energy. It's not necessarily about a particular riff or a particular style. It's about the energy that they bring to the music. And so it just kind of reinforces what we've sort of already talked about, is that there's so many different genres of metal, and there's also a lot of different ways to approach that music. And so I think in addition to introducing some bands to people through this show, it sounds like it's also helping people maybe think about music a little bit differently, which I think is super cool. Oh yeah, that's awesome. Absolutely, yeah. I'm kind of I, I, I the music is the well, the music and the sound of the vocals is are the two sort of most important things to me. The actual lyrics are important, but not as important to me as the sound of the lyrics, if that makes sense, of of the vocalist and the voice and how sort how of the they delivery. sing. Right, delivery. Yes, absolutely, exactly. The delivery is more important than the actual lyrics to me uh that said i mean it's a very very close run thing you know the lyrics are do have to be good um you know one of the reasons that i'm not a big fan of sort of cock rock bands and you know your van halens and your motley crews and stuff is that the lyrics are generally pretty awful um and uh, you know i prefer a bit more effort being put into them to be honest but the sound of the lyrics is more still more important than the than the actual you know, vocabulary content, if you like, which is how I can, I listen to an awful lot of non-English, especially goth, more so goth than metal, but nevertheless metal as well, bands, where I literally can't understand what they're saying. You know, they're singing in like fucking Russian and Romanian and stuff, and I have no idea what they are saying. But the sound and the delivery, as you say, of it is enough and engages me enough that I can still get into it. And I think for certain genres of metal, that is the same for me as well. Like in, in uh, you know, to use that sort of 80s metal, especially hair metal category as an example, like I don't pay much attention to the lyrics because for that particular type of music, I listen to it for the riffs right. and I listen to it usually for the delivery of the chorus and the in that kind of, it's a very certain style of music to me. So I know what the lyrics are going to be about. They're going to be about sex, drugs, rock and roll, women, that kind of <laughs> stuff. So, and, and, and in many cases, uh, you know, they're very disposable sort of lyrics, but um, but yeah, it's a certain vibe that I want from that type of music. Whereas something like the album that we're going to talk about today, I'm expecting something different when I come to that music. Not right. that one is better than the other in my mind, but right, just but just very different. Yeah. Exactly. And so for me, like depending on the genre of metal that it is, there are different things that I that I expect. And and as we talk about this album in a minute, I got a couple more feedback things. But because I'm not super familiar with a lot of doom and sort of goth metal this process has been kind of an education for me. So I'm just sort of figuring out what I come to this music for, which is kind of an interesting journey. Figuring out what to expect when you approach it. Exactly. Yes. Well, and Um, even within the genre, like, I mean, I said uh, last week that My Dying Bride are basically my second favorite band after famously Paradise Lost were my favorite. But honestly, they're kind of joint first because even though they are both you know, m- people who aren't into this kind of music would listen to them and say, well, they're basically the same. But they're obviously, they're not. And they're different enough to somebody like me who is kind of immersed in this subgenre of metal. Uh, they're different enough that they kind of, you know, they can share that sort of first spot jointly because they are, I actually find it very difficult to compare one to the other. Even though most people would go, well, they're basically the same, but they're, they are, to me, so different that, you know, the lyrics are different, the delivery is different, the music's mm-hmm. different, the attitude is 
even the, you know their sort of performances and stuff is all very very different i agree within the same subgenre and so yeah you know it's you really do have to approach things with different expectations yeah we and we should come back to that point too when we get in the album because i do find uh from the albums that we've listened to this one and then icon from paradise lost very different and we can certainly talk about what those what those differences are to me someone who wasn't even really familiar with them but mm. um David Wynn said, I really enjoyed this week's show on multiple levels. It sounds like I'd enjoy the album. He's talking about Mind Crime. He said, I didn't get a chance to listen to it first, but also your enthusiasm versus Anthony's lack of the same made for some very entertaining <laughs> moments. And he quoted one where I was like, this is my favorite song on the album. And your uh, pregnant reaction pause was, reaction really? was, really? <laughs> yeah. So he, he really got a kick out of that, um, which I love. I love that people are sort of... Uh, figuring out as we figure out like where where the venn diagram of our of our listening sort of overlaps and stuff like that um and then max sherman as you mentioned said so i listened to the lord of the rings episode of thresh it out he said and i'm in camp latendry when it comes to mind crime but he said i think and i don't want to devalue brian's position which is also mine any discussion about the album with an old fan and a new listener is like arguing about say the movie 2001 he said, if you were there when it actually happened, it uh, when it formed your view on a genre, your views are different from those who come in with the fresh take of someone 27 years later. He said, that's not nostalgia, but a deep-rooted taste and understanding of a piece of art against distanced analysis. He said, they're both perfectly valid, but of course, Anthony is totally wrong. <laughs> and he is totally right. And as I said in reply to him on Twitter, you know, you pretty much heard the reverse of that when we were talking about Icon from Paradise Lost, because that is, as you heard, an album deeply, deeply ingrained in my sort of metal upbringing, as it were, whereas it was entirely new to you. So, you know, n none of us are free of that kind of, uh, I don't want to call it bias, but you know, you know what I mean? That kind It of is though. It, it is like a... um. And I don't want to call it judgment either, but I do think as metal fans, because at least for me, metal growing up was this thing I could escape to that was sort of against the grain of everything else that was going on in my life and against the grain of everything else that was sort of going on in the world. And I think there is this, there's this interesting dynamic with uh, our sort of love affair with metal because there's so many different genres of metal and everything else. There's always this kind of jockeying of like what type of metal I like versus mm. what type of metal you like. And I think that even though we've kind of grown beyond that, and, and I would like to think that over the years, you know, we're, we're, we've been exposed to new things and all that kind of stuff, there is still that part of your brain who's like, that's really their favorite thing? Huh. Right. <laughs> Interesting. Like, oh, he, Van Halen's Hot for Teacher is that person's favorite song of all time? Hmm. That's interesting. You know what I mean? Like, where it just sort of... Uh, there is a part of you that questions that, especially if you are completely on the opposite other end of the spectrum, you know, right. in, in terms of something that you like. So, so yeah. And I, and I think that some of what I like about the discussions that we're having is it kind of helps work through a lot of that stuff. You know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. 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 No, it's, I, this, this is why when, when you say this is my favorite song and I say, really, um, I'm not being sarcastic, you know, I'm genuinely, I want to know why. Right. I find it absolutely fascinating, this sort I, of I was going to uh, say fascinating, stuff. too. That's yeah. the same word that comes to mind. Is like, huh, what makes that, A, what makes that not the same thing for me? Uh, and right. then B, what makes it that thing for, for you? Them. Yeah. And yeah. if I can understand that, then maybe I can see that differently 
than I saw it before. Yeah, and gain a, a better understanding exactly. of yourself. Absolutely. Yep. So great, awesome feedback. I, I mean, I can't say enough about the reaction on Twitter, the, just the discussions that people are are starting up around these episodes and the feedback that we're getting. Like it's it's pretty awesome to have an episode drop and then have these great discussions pop up around that stuff. So, yes, uh, th- and we love been... hearing from you guys. Absolutely, absolutely. Re- remember, I'm at Anthony Johnston, A N T O N Y J O H N S T O N on Twitter, and Brian is at C Brian Wright. Yeah, again, keep the feedback coming because, and and again, I know people are throwing a lot of album suggestions out there too. Keep those coming as well because even though we'll be very cryptic about our response to album suggestions and stuff like that, like we. We have a lot of potential albums kicking around in our heads, but we're always looking to add to those lists. Too, oh yeah, so. yeah, we're always listening, absolutely. Um, but yeah, we we you know we can't cover everything at once, unfortunately. So you'll just have to wait. <laughs> right, and we might cover, and, and it's kind of like one of those things where we might cover something that is somewhat related to the thing that you wanted us to cover, and and so that's another thing that we try to do is sort of bridge some of those gaps and and draw some connections between the two of. Uh, of yeah. different things so all right so my dying bride yep. they uh what a name what a fantastic band name they are as you know as i've said a doom metal band one of the original sort of of the modern wave of doom metal bands formed in apparently 1990 in bradford just again just down the road from where i live i live in doom metal country now you see um bradford is a small town stroke city on the edge of leeds which is a larger uh city in northern england um kind of the uh, the shitty little brother. Uh, <laughs> people from Bradford really resent the fact that everybody just refers to the area as Leeds Bradford because they're like, we're our own city, you know? Um, but that's just the way thing go- things go. It's kind of like how out here in Massachusetts, everybody thinks of Boston as Massachusetts. Right, and if you're right. within two hours of Boston, then you're part of Boston. Right. You may as well be in Boston, yeah. And we who are, I live on the western part of Massachusetts, and we are considered to be, by many, part of Connecticut. We're not even part of Massachusetts. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, like a lot of people don't even, you know, right. we're part of New York or Connecticut. So I don't know what it is about this area. Like I said, uh, when we talked about Paradise Lost, like Anathema, uh, along with Paradise Lost, you know, and My Dying Bride, are the, the, known as the sort of the original big three of Doom. And Anathema from Liverpool, Paradise Lost from Halifax, and My Dying Bride from Bradford. And the, all those towns are, by American standards, they're basically next to one another. I mean, by, by English standards, they're, you know, it's an hour's drive between each one. But to an American, I mean, that's, you know, you probably in the same county or something. Yep. Um, so, yeah, it's, I don't know what it was about this. And they were all on the same label as well, Peaceville Records, um, which specialised in that sort of death, doomy, stuff in the early 1990s and still does i believe my damn bride is still on peaceful records they've never changed record label which is kind of amazing um at least i don't think so anyway uh so they are they started with uh, you have aaron stainthorpe who is the vocalist and lyricist andrew crayon or cragen never been quite sure how you pronounce that uh the lead guitarist and those two are the principal songwriters and the core band members they are sort of My Dying Bride Incorporated, if you like. And then to start with, there was a guy called Rick Meyer, who was one of the co-founders, uh, the drummer, uh, Calvin Robert Shaw on second guitars, and Adrian Jackson on bass. And they were, that was very much the sort of the initial few albums, the core unit, if you like. Now, this is, Turn Loose the Swans is only their second album. Uh, their first album was 
uh, was it as the, no, as the flower withers was an EP. It was the thrash of naked limbs. Um, oh no, no, I've got it the wrong way around. The thrash of naked limbs was an EP as the flower withers was the album. Um, but both of those were quite deathy and thrashy and Aaron was growling the whole way through. They were relatively fast. Um, you know, very sort of downbeat and deathy, but nevertheless, not really giving much of a clue. And Aaron famously sang in Latin half the time and stuff. Um, not giving much of a clue as to what this album would be. And then when this album came out, uh, by the time it came out, they had also recruited a, a guy called Martin Powell, who plays keyboards and violin. And that's kind of where things turn the corner for the band. A bit like with, uh, remember I mentioned with Paradise Lost, they had the Shades of God album. And there were yep. a couple of tracks on there where they kind of found their sound. Well, as soon as they got a violinist, My Dying Bride found their sound. And that sound would then basically go on to define them for the next 20, 30 years. Um, and that, and they cemented that with this album, Turn Loose the Swans, uh, which, as I've said before, 1993, released around the same time as things like uh, Typo Negative's Bloody Kisses and Paradise Lost Icon, a really, really good time for this kind of metal. Um, and it, I mean, for me, it just blew me away. Uh, when I first heard it, uh, it was absolutely amazing. The but we'll get into that later. Just talking, continuing to talk about the band. They have had many, many lineup changes since the time of this album being released. Um, like they've uh, Calvin Robert Shaw left uh, and was replaced by a guy called Hamish Glencross, who was then fired last year, and Calvin has come back bizarrely uh, for the new album. They've had several keyboard and violin players most of them women, actually, after Martin Powell left, but now they've got a guy again, a guy called Sean McGowan. A Jackson left and was replaced by a woman called Lena Abbe, uh, who on bass, uh, Rick Meyer, had to quit for health reasons, I believe, for medical reasons, a couple of albums after this, and they have had a revolving drumming stall ever since. Currently not even filled by a permanent member. At the oh. moment, they list their drummer as Dan Mullins, who is basically a touring member only. Um, I haven't seen, they've got a new album out as we record. I think it's literally due to drop like next week or something. Um, but I haven't seen it yet. So I don't know who plays drums in the studio, know whether it is him or whether they've got somebody else. It's, it's chaotic <laughs> and, and always has been. But uh, as I said, at the core of it has always been Aaron and Andrew. They are the sort of the heart, if you like, of My Dying Bride. And this album really sort of gets that across. The The one thing that I really uh, wish hadn't been the case was uh, Rick Meyer, the drummer, leaving. Because you heard me mention Rick before, actually, when we talked about Dave Lombardo on the Slayer episode. Rick's drumming helped define this genre. Like, this is not... There are no drum machines or triggers here. You know what I mean? This is a yep. real drummer. Uh, and he is playing incredibly slow and incredibly accurately. And... Um, deceptively complex drumming, considering how slow it is, considering the really slow tempos, tempos in a lot of it, it is actually really quite complex. And his taste and restraint and his style really helped define this entire genre. Um, without his drumming, this album would not sound, you know, the way it does. I mean, that's obvious, but I mean, it wouldn't, I don't think it would have half the impact that it has if there was a different drummer in there. And I think it's a crying shame that he doesn't get the recognition 
for that, partly because he had to quit after a couple of albums because, as I say, of, I believe, maybe Crohn's disease or something, some kind of health oh, okay. reasons. Um, yeah, that's an interesting point about about him as a drummer because I agree with you. Anytime that you are sort of have a tempo that's either really fast or really slow, it puts a lot of pressure, I think, on the mm. rhythm section to be able to hold that together because in both directions it's easy to sort of go off the rails like in, yes. if you're going if you have a very methodical sort of tempo and it's really slow then you you can sort of grind to a halt if it's not carefully held together and i think if you're if you're sort of going too fast it can kind of go off the rails if uh if if it's not sort of held together and and from my listening of this album because the bass is not a standout at least to my ears a, a standout instrument on this album i feel like he is the rhythm section on right. this album in many ways so he is holding all of this together and yeah the bass on this album is very much following the guitars on their right. later albums that changed a little and actually the the very next album after this the angel in the dark river um has more bass presence and more interesting bass stuff on it. But for this album, yes, it, it just basically follows the guitars. And so, as you say, it's all down to the drummer to sort of keep things interesting. And he does. And, and, and well, as we get into this different songs, we, we can certainly talk mm. about that, but that's, uh, he definitely does that for sure. And they, they are another band famously who went through an experimental period <laughs> uh, after they did a few more albums like this. Um, Interesting, interestingly, much like Paradise Lost, with the songs getting shorter and shorter uh, as they went on until eventually they released an album in the late 1990s called 34.788% Complete, which is just like, what? Uh, apparently based around a dream that Aaron had had. And it's quite an experimental album. The sound is quite different. Uh, the The song structure and the writing on that album isn't that different, but they had one song on there called heroin chic and this was around the time that bands like portishead and massive attack were really big uh-huh uh and it they experimented with sort of quasi trip hop sound still with distorted guitars still with aaron's lyrics and stuff but with a bit of keyboard a bit of swing in the drums and it's one track on the album just one track but that one track became a lightning rod for disgruntled fans basically to say like this is shit You've completely sold out. You know, you've become a pop band. I'm not listening to this. This is not what I signed up for. And I think that's a real shame because the rest of that album is fantastic and really, really heavy. But the guitar sound is quite different to previous albums as well. And the whole thing is a bit more sort of lush production-wise. And consequently, it's been kind of overlooked. And I I just think that's a, you know, that's a real shame. But again, like Paradise Lost, they came out of the other side with better work for it, you know, having sort of got that out of their system, they then started going back to a heavier sound. They released an album called Songs of Darkness, Words of Light immediately afterwards, or almost immediately afterwards, which, uh, by the way, is the album I couldn't remember that has that track I mentioned, A Doomed Lover, with the coda oh, okay. at the end that just sort of repeats and goes on and on. Um, fantastic album, real standout, heavy, doomy album. And some of their recent albums, like For Lies I Sire, and a line of Deathless Kings have been excellent because they've combined the sort of sheer heaviness of the earlier albums with the sort of slightly tighter songwriting that they had as they were experimenting. Um, 
and I, I know I bang this gong all the time, <laughs> but what always has set My Dying Bride apart from many bands that sound similar on the surface for me is the dynamics of the songwriting and the quality of Aaron's lyrics. Actually, this is a band where the lyrics are important. Um, it's not, there's a variety of tempo, of tone, there's key changes and some great riffs and everything as well, but it's not just all one dirge that, you know, repeats in the, the same three notes over and over again. It all works together. They are really, really great songwriters. And I feel like to to go back to what you said about the one song that sort of became a lightning rod for their fan base, mm. I feel like when a band is, well, obviously it makes sense, but when a band is one of your favorites, you're so much more tolerant of that, of their experimentation, because they're sort of, they're like your home team. You know, they're they're the, <laughs> they're the one that you sort of defend against that type of stuff. I mean, we did a whole episode of of uh, unjustly maligned about Megadeth's Risk, right? Mm. Which is an album that most people objectively look at and say it's garbage compared to the rest of their of their catalog. So I, I do feel like bands need that. They need their they need the fans that will help guide others through those things. Because for many people who maybe aren't as diehard of fans or or you know have one particular way that they want to see a band. It, all it takes is one song for them to jump off the train and right. and sort of not come back to it. And then and that is a lot of times bands struggle to get people to come back and check them out after they've done something that is considered a departure. But you know, you talked about it being experimental. I feel like, at least from the stuff that I've been listening to, you know, that we've been talking about the sh- on the show, that whole genre of metal is experimental. Mm. You know, you talked about how this band was formed in 1990, and yet they helped define an entire genre of metal. So we're talking about a genre of metal, it, it certainly seems like that is, that's not that old. You know what I mean? Right, That, right, that yeah. they're still, you know, it's not, it's, it's still kind of, you know, even, I mean, granted, it's, you know, almost three decades now, but still, that's not that old. You well, know what it's, I mean? We're as far from the creation of doom metal as we think of it now, as doom metal was from, like, Black Sabbath's first mm. album. That sort of, you know, it's that kind of, right. which is relatively new within metal. I would metal. think so, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so it makes sense to me in, in a lot of ways that, um, you know, these bands, while they might fit in a general category, could be very different from one another in terms right. of how, how they're approaching this genre. Well, and you're right that obviously there is a little element of, it's my team, you know. So yes, I sort of, I'm going to support them, whatever they do. But on the, it's not just that. It's also, from my point of view anyway, it's because... And maybe this comes from having been in bands myself, I don't know, but it, for me, there's also the realisation that bands who don't experiment, who want to experiment, but don't, quite often just break up, yep. you know, uh, they just they just split up. And I don't want, because this is one of my favourite bands, I don't want that to happen. I want them to carry on making music. And yes, not all of that music will always hit 100% because they are trying new things, but I would rather that and that that allows them to continue making new music than they sort of feel that they can't because their fans will desert them. And therefore there's so much te- internal tension that they just split up and don't make any more new music. You know what I mean? I'd rather have right. one than the other. Well, we just talked about the two guys that left Megadeth to go and form right. yeah. band because again, <laughs> exactly. uh, and that happens too in bands where people don't like, I'm, I'm still waiting for the, for the super band that Kirk Hammond is going to some, someday create because he's never been allowed to do anything in freaking Metallica for crying yeah, out loud. Yeah, you've mentioned that before. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, so, uh, I totally agree. I'd rather, I would rather a band 
experiment and still be my favorite band than break right. up and all go do separate projects and then I'll have my favorite band anymore. Exactly. So. And you talked about them getting fans back, actually. And you're right, that is an issue when bands sort of go through that period and then come out of it and sort of try to get the old fans and go, look, look, we're doing our old stuff again. Um, one of the things that helped with My Dying Bride was that they they did not play live a lot at all until kind of the sort of early to mid 2000s. You know, they went their first like 10, 15 years, very, very rarely playing live. Um, I'm not entirely sure what that is. I've only seen them a couple of times live myself. Um, Aaron has never looked entirely comfortable on stage. So I don't know whether there is an element of stage fright or something. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, they just didn't play live much. And they also seem to have really bad luck. Like I remember there was what, uh, I think Rick like broke his ankle, like, you know, falling off a stage or something at one point during the Swans tour. Famously, they had all their gear nicked, including like really expensive electric violins and stuff. Uh, out of the back of a van that was even reported in Kerrang. it was like they were wow. in uh, holland or something and just everything was nicked you know um so <laughs> they had a bit of bad luck maybe that put them off but uh in the sort of mid 2000s they started playing live a lot more now maybe that was prescient maybe because they started seeing which way the wind was blowing and that you know they were going to have to start playing live more to keep earning money um, or maybe, you know, they just got better at it and Aaron got more comfortable. I'm not sure. But I think that helped bring back a lot of the older fans simply because I think a lot of people turned up to see them play live in more recent years, just because they'd never had the chance to at all before, um, because they play live so rarely. So I think that may have helped, you know? Yeah. And before we get into the, the track by track stuff, I, I like to dig through interviews and sort of see what bands have to say about influences and stuff like that, especially bands that I'm not familiar with. So there was Mm -hmm. an interview from 2014 that was done with uh, the lead vocalist, Aaron Stainthorpe, on a site called Steel for Brains. And I have the link, Anthony, so I can send it to you if people want to read it. But uh, one of the questions that was posed to him is, what band from your youth, what band or music from your youth do you see as kind of a creative catalyst for you as a musician? And is that the same band or type of music something or something that continues to inspire you creatively. And he said, I suppose my metal heritage was with the classic classics such as Iron Maiden, Dio, ACDC, etc. But upon hearing Bathory for the first time in 1988, it took a decidedly darker and more extreme turn for the better. I really wanted to create similar music to that band and others too, like Candlemass, though completely different genres they both took no prisoners, and that appealed to me greatly. I still listen to early Bathory, uh, the first five albums, and old Candlemass, along with Celtic Frost and Sodom, but I've expanded my likes to include such luminaries as Nick Cave, Bat for Lashes, Mazzy Star, Death Stars, and even Ludovico Inwadi, to name a few. I'll listen to most things miserable if it's performed with zest. Right, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Interestingly, actually, all of the sort of proto-Doom bands cited uh celtic frost i mean you know many of them cited bands like bathory and candlemas as well but they all mentioned celtic frost as a really big uh, influence on their early stuff which i find fascinating because i'm not a big celtic frost fan at all but clearly there was something about them that was sort of you know that struck a chord with all of these bands i haven't visited that band in a long time but i remember back in the day listening to them uh but it would be interesting to go back because they are brought up so much by a lot of bands in terms of influences. Mm. Um, one other thing that I wanted to to pull from this interview that I thought was really interesting because it's, it speaks to this, 
sort of our philosophies in general, they said to him, what is it about heavy music that you feel provides the perfect creative conduit and has your perspective on the genre changed since you wrote your first song? And he said, I don't think there are really any boundaries when it comes to heavy metal music, and the amount of genres and subgenres would seem to go along with that. Anything goes, and as a wordsmith, that's a red rag to a bull, which I thought was a nice way to put that. He said, you can be as extreme as you like, a virtuoso or young kid, have a million dollars or jack shit, but as long as you're firing on all cylinders, then heavy metal is for you. And I love that. If anything, the sheer size of the world of heavy metal has ballooned since we first came together 24 years ago, showing us all that the scene is as popular and vibrant as it's ever been. Absolutely true, 100%. Uh, red rag to a bull, incidentally, is a common English turn of phrase. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, I couldn't agree with him more. And don't you just love, those are really good questions. Um, you know, can you imagine if that interview had been being done by, uh, you know, some mainstream outlet where they treat heavy metal as, as if it's like, a, you know, music for infants or something? Exactly. And then you get somebody who clearly is taking it seriously and treating it as an art form. Really good questions. Well, and and he just perfectly encapsulates, you know, I think what our thoughts are about heavy metal as a broader category is oh, that yeah, there's yeah. there's it is not one category. It is dozens and dozens of genres that and, that are included. And it's an in attitude that. and a lifestyle as Absolutely. much as anything. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So Aaron cool. incidentally is a very very well-read man, which anybody who's familiar with their music has probably guessed. Uh and I'm sure you probably guessed, you know, if you're reading the lyrics along with sure. this album. He's like uh you know, he's like genuinely reads 18th century romantic poetry for fun, that sort of thing. Um apparently often writes lyrics while he's had a few too many glasses of wine. Uh-huh. Uh, to sort of, you know, access his inner Shelley or something. I don't know. Um, <laughs> bit of a hedonist, uh, but also a bit of a fitness nut, much like Nick Holmes from Paradise Lost, but, uh, bizarrely. You know, he's apparently constantly in the gym. Um, but yeah, he is hes a very, very well-read man, a very sort of literate man. And that comes across very much in his lyrics. And I think is a large part of the appeal to non-hardcore metal fans. My Dying Bride have a very big fan base of people who aren't death metal fans and who actually aren't necessarily then going to turn around and listen to Bathory or something. Um, And also a lot of women, which these days, thank goodness, is not so rare. But in, in the early 1990s, along with bands like Paradise Lost, My Dying Bride had more women at their fans than almost any other band. And a lot of that is because uh, of the way that, well, the way they approach the music, but mainly because of the way that Aaron approaches lyrics, which is, you know, they are un- they are a pretentious band. They're called My Dying Bride, for heaven's sake, you know. Oh are- yeah, super pretentious. Yeah, like <laughs> we'll are- talk about that. Like, yeah. like that if you if you uh, if you superficially looked at this band, you could say that it's super douchey. In yeah. the way that <laughs> the lyrics, well, and many across. people did, yeah, it's, sure. Uh, but it's it's unashamed, you know. They're kind of like, yes, of course, we're pretentious because you know we're we're storytellers and we're presenting drama yes. so, to an audience. What's so interesting to me about that is that this for this band and for this genre of music that is celebrated. Oh yeah, Where, whereas yeah. someone would look at sort of '80s hair metal lyrics and be like, "Oh, those are so cheesy and so ridiculous and so over the top." Or we even talked about you know uh, Queensrÿche's lyrics and and stuff right. like that. And and there is this sort of um, I think sort of snobbish mentality sometimes of 
what's considered to be deep lyric writing and what is considered to be like horseshit. And right. so it's always funny to me to, to, to sort of hear like how some people are like, oh, this band is just so deep and, and you know, uh, just so well written lyrics and all this kind of stuff. And this other band is just completely cheese factor. I, I think it all does depend on what your preferences are and also what you what you come to that music for because you could look at almost any lyrics and and go one of two ways with them either this is the deepest thing i've ever read or this is completely pretentious ridiculousness well and again it comes down to how you approach it as we were saying before right and so i think but that for me has been interesting because coming to the this uh both with this and with paradise lost it's it's a learning experience for me you know what i mean What's really interesting about the, lyrically comparing My Dying Bride to Paradise Lost is My Dying Bride are much more unashamedly emotional and oh, romantic. Yes, you know, they're, they're romantic lyrics, is a good that that absolutely. Yeah, similar to typo negative actually. Uh-huh. You know, the, the lyrics are often about love and romance and emotions and inner turmoil. And yes, it, you know, you could say that that's cliched, but it is. It feels genuine, even though it's it's pretentious deliberately. It does feel at least. Like these are genuine, universal feelings and emotions that the that Aaron is is writing about. Much like Pete Steele did with, you know, many of the songs with Typo. Unlike Paradise Lost, which is slightly colder, you know, a bit more, uh, sort of a bit more remote and cryptic. Sure, and I think it, I think if you're if you're coming to this music for that, you're you're coming to it to evoke a mood. You know, obviously, yes. it it is doom metal. It is goth metal. Like you're come, one of the biggest things you're coming to this music for, at least for, from my perspective, is to evoke a certain category of emotions. Yeah, absolutely. And I think they do that very well. And I think, album. as I say, that that's a large part of why they had and have always had a very large female fan base. Uh, I pulled because, a quote, by the way. Go on about this album from the Rolling Stone review, and the quote says. Turn Loose the Swans is Bram Stoker's Dracula for the ears. <laughs> I think they would probably take that as a compliment. <laughs> that's probably, if I had to sum up this album in one sentence, that's probably it. That's, yeah, that's not a bad way of putting it. I mean, yeah. I, uh, I, I hadn't read that before. I came to this album because I had actually never heard of them until I read a review uh, of this album in Kerrang! Uh, and I don't remember exactly what it said, but I do remember that it emphasised that it was miserable, gothic, and heavy, like all at the same time, and that it did not sound like anything else that you had ever heard. Uh-huh. You know, it, it was a completely different sound. The band had found their own sound, sound and it was very unique. Um, and as I've said before, me being a big old goth, that I was like, okay, I should. That sounds like an album I should go and you know look for. I mean, they gave it you know full marks. Um, and I found it in my local record store, the one I mentioned before, where the manager, you know, used to keep me stocked up with uh, goth, weird goth and indie stuff. Um, and took it home, and within thirty seconds, I was I was in, I was sold, just like. And we'll, you know, as we go track by track, that will sure. become apparent. But literally within thirty seconds to put it on, it changed my life. This album quite literally changed my life because I had never heard music like this before and I did not know. I, it was one of those things where I, I, until I heard it, I didn't know that I was looking for it. But the moment I heard it, I was like, oh, this is it. This is, this is my thing. Yeah. yeah. And I, di- I didn't realize it until now, but this touched me so profoundly 
that uh, that was it. I was just okay. I'm in. I'm in. This is it. Yeah, that's awesome, man. I, I I love that. I think we all have those albums, and it's kind of an amazing thing when you when you first realize that when you first listen to an album and you're like, this is the this is the thing. Yeah, this is the one that just speaks to my core. Um, well, and it's not the only time that that's happened. I should point out the first well, time. Well, no, I, heard... I mean because we're both obviously this is a, a genre of music that we that has become deeply embedded in our lives mm. to the point that we're now, you know, yeah. <laughs> at the age that we are doing a heavy metal podcast, spend a couple of hours every week talking about it. Yeah, yeah, um, and, and and I and I you know I hesitate to say that I think music's more important to me than it is to other people or whatever, but I do feel like. Um, Oh no, I, I will quite happily say that because yeah, I know, you know what it I mean. Is, like I know? do feel like it is something that, if it is woven that deeply into your sort of daily existence, it it does just take on a different meaning for you. And, yeah. and certainly that's how I feel about music. And there are certain albums where you can just point to them and say, "Wow, that was one of the tentpole yeah. albums well, that really affected everything." So, sometimes not even an album for me. Like the one that kicked it all off for me was hearing "Paranoid" by Black Sabbath when I uh-huh. was a kid. You know, just that one song bang, that's it, you know, completely set a course for my entire life. <laughs> yep. Uh, when I first heard Murmur, first time I heard R.E.M.'s album Murmur, um, actually, no, was it Murmur? No, it was Chronic Town. It was the EP, Chronic Town. First time I heard that, I, I was, again, I was like, right, I'm in, that's it, bang, blew me away. Um, so no, it's not even just metal, you know. So it's not that this, has never, that this had never happened, but this particular kind of music, it had never happened within the sort of doom, you know, I'd never discovered the doom metal genre before this. And yeah, just absolutely floored me. Um, let's give some details. So it's <laughs> people who haven't listened to the album yet might not realize this. This track is 60 minutes long, but has only six tracks. The shortest song is four minutes, 52. The longest is 12 minutes, 15. And the average is around eight or nine minutes. That's the average Eight or nine minutes. <laughs> yeah. Song. Um, I sh- I'll briefly mention then their next album. I-, I mentioned it earlier. The Angel in the Dark River is. I think it actually may have. It's a bit like Paradise Lost with Icon and Draconian Times. I think it actually sold more than this. It's certainly a little more musically accomplished. You know, more technically polished. Um, and I do love that album, not least because the opening track is called "The Cry of Mankind." is twelve minutes long. And the last five minutes of those 12 minutes are just ambient wind and ocean noises with a violin and occasional choir in the background. Yeah. <laughs> That's the opening song on that album. I fucking love it. Um, but this this is the definitive album for me. As I said, it's the one that I discovered the genre through. It's the one that got me into the band that made me a fan for life uh, and is the one that I go back and listen to more than any other of the band. So that's why... I picked it to talk about of all the albums of theirs that I could have picked. Yeah. I can't wait to dive into it, man. My, I, I can just give you my general, you know, uh, before we go track by track, like but the first thing I thought when I started listening to this album was this is a real ray of sunshine, isn't it? <laughs> because it is like, it, it is, it's like someone who is slowly pulling their guts out for the entire album. Like it, yeah. it's, 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 it's so mournful and so uh, methodical that it definitely was an album for me that first listened through, I was like, what the hell is this? And then I, 
because it, the, especially as it starts, I'm like, okay, I'm waiting for the metal. Where, right, there's going right. to be a part here where the metal starts, and certainly the metal does start. It didn't start when I thought it was going to start, but that you don't. I think at the first time through this album, your idea of what heavy is has to change. Yes, as you go through and listen to it, and I think that's where we, you know, when I talk about sort of my understanding of this genre of music and my learning curve for this genre of music is that what I consider to be heavy and what I consider to be metal are concepts that in different genres like this have to be looked at differently. This is a very heavy album and this is a very metal album, but not in the way that a Megadeth album is. Or right. a Slayer not, not album Not in the is. way that Master of Puppets is heavy. Or a Metallic yeah. absolutely. Yeah. You know, and name your favorite sort of thrash band or something like that. Or even, you know, uh, or even a Black Sabbath album is. Well, you, you or know. even, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the Defiled album. Sure. You know, a very modern album, very heavy, very metal, but not at all in this exactly. style. So, yes. So, this was, this was an album that I think even more so than uh, the Paradise Lost album really had that concept click for me. Yeah, like of okay, I need to adjust what I think of when I say heavy. I need to adjust what I think of when I say metal. And so this was another one of those albums where it's a multiple listen album for me. Oh, definitely, yeah. As yeah. someone who is coming in with a completely different filter, in order to get to what this album is all about. Okay, so so let's go track by track. Uh-huh. Um, and. W- First track. <laughs> I have a feeling we may be talking about this one for a while, so uh, buckle up, everyone. Um, first track is CME MCMXCIII, in other words, 1993 in Roman numerals, the year the album was released. is the third installment of a Sear Me song, if I'm no, not No, actually, no, it's the second. It's oh, okay. the second of three. There is, there is Sear Me on the first album, or actually might be on the EP, uh, and then there's this version, and then there is another version they did on an album like oh, 10 right. years okay, later. Yep. Um, this is the only one that sounds like this. <laughs> uh, all the others are sort of more traditional, slow, but more traditional kind of doom metal. Uh, this, however, is not. And this was the song that did it. Like I say, those first 30 seconds of this with the piano 
and you just start to hear Aaron's voice. And and like you, I was expecting it to go. I was expecting the piano to fade out and it goes, you know, bang into the guitars and riffs, you know, because that's what metal records did in those days. That was exactly. how it was very, Metallica started it or popularized it, I should say, uh, you know, very common to start with an acoustic guitar or a bit of piano or whatever, and then bang into the riffs and off we go. But no, this one doesn't do that. It just keeps going. No guitars, no drums, just the violin, piano, and Aaron's voice and clean voice. And I was mesmerized. Yeah, this was a song for me that the first time I listened to it, I was like, I, I, it, I was anticipating the crash. I was anticipating when it was going to kick in. And so it took me a couple listens to actually absorb this song. I love the piano line in this song. And um, I also love how they layered the piano lines. So mm. you, you have the main piano line and then you have the secondary piano line sort of building off of one another. And then the violin. Um, the melody of this song is mournful and beautiful. And, and this is kind of, this was the song that I was like, this is heavy. You know right. what I mean? Like the, yeah. there, this is like emotionally, like like the 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 mood that it evokes is heavy, and so this went from a song that I was kind of disappointed with the first time that I listened to this album to becoming probably my favorite song on the album. Oh wow, wow, yeah. that is impressive. But you're right that that ability to make something that is sonically fairly quiet and soft Mm -hmm. and yet it's so intense that it feels heavy that is that's one of the things that my dying bride do better than anybody else in my opinion and believe me that is not an easy thing to speaking as a songwriter that is not an easy thing to pull off you know uh and they do it so well i love it and i love piano in in metal in this genre of music and i also love some good strings and i love some good horns and so when they're used appropriately they work to tremendous effect and i think here the violin line works perfectly to build on the piano line there's just uh it it's it's just a really heavy song is probably the best way i can say it yeah well absolutely you get that sort of piano there's an additional third piano riff that starts repeating at the end and then you get some synth trumpet blasts i mean it's all synths. the piano isn't a real you know it's a synth piano the trumpets are synths obviously right but it all it all builds. There is nothing here that is heavy, as you said, in the way that we think of it. If as you, you know, if you're thinking of like thrash metal, but it is there's so much drama and so much sort of heavy weight feeling in it, and it builds to this wonderful climax. And like the trumpet stuff is just so minimal. You know mm. what I mean? Like it's not it, nothing overpowers the piano line. You know what I mean? Yeah, like nothing, nothing. It, it all just accentuates that. Yeah, and uh, musically, you know, my old, my my old favorite dynamics. Uh, there's a great example of that in this song at three minutes thirty, when it's been building for a while, and then it just drops. Everything drops out and kind of restarts with the same piano chords as the beginning, but then where in the first thirty seconds, it's like as you said, they layer things. Like one element comes in at a time. What they do here is when it comes back in, everything comes back in at once. The vocals, the violin, the layered second piano line, it all comes back in at once. And that has 
even though it's just the same as what you were just listening to, because you've had that quiet moment and because the build-up hasn't happened, you just drop everything straight in, it feels more forceful. Yeah, there's uh, more weight to it, for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's an element, that's an example of how to build heaviness without actually needing to add, you know, cymbal crashes and, yep. like, and big guitars and stuff in. And there's a moment, because these songs are so long, that, that moment where everything drops out, you think the song is over, or I thought the song was right. over at that point, yeah. you know what I mean? And then it comes back in again. And so the this song, I feel like this song teaches you a lot about what to expect from yeah. this album and in that way is a great opening song because it it's teaches you patience you know it teaches <laughs> you to it, it does though because it's like they're not interested in what i expect from a song or from metal or from, you know what i mean like they're mm-hmm. yeah they're laying this out in a very methodical and measured way and they're gonna you're gonna have to be patient and see how that unfolds. And so it's it rewards patience, but it sort of punishes this. If you're waiting for for a certain part to kick in, or if you're waiting for you know uh, for the symbol crashes to come in, like I feel like the first listen through, your your brain is kind of fighting that, right? right. <laughs> and then you got to let it, and then you just got to let it unfold. But I I really like this as the first song in the album, and I, and I think it's actually a song that feels, even though it's really heavy uh, emotionally and and sonically, I feel like it's almost one of the more upbeat songs on the album. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I, I feel like the just the the escalating nature of it is it's a building song, whereas a lot of the songs on this album are very um wallowing. Right, and I don't right. feel like this song is wallowing. Yeah. Yeah, I know I know what you mean. Yeah. It's uh it's a st- we've said this before about opening tracks on some great albums. It's a statement of intent. Even though it doesn't have the guitars and doesn't have the drums, as you say, it is very much a kind of, this is, you know, take it or leave it, but this is what you're going to get. Yep. And this is how you have to listen to this album. And if you're not on board with that, you know, then get off this train now because you ain't going to like the rest of it. <laughs> right. And, and But they but it's it, because it's such a long song, like it gives you time to think about that before we move on to the next song. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, you mull this over. Are you in for the ride or are you not in for the ride? It's not like where most bands will have uh, more of an instrumental sort of opening and it's a minute and a half, you know, to an album or something. This is like, why don't you take your shoes off and sit down and get comfortable here and uh, we're going to let you know what this album is going to be. Right. This isn't an intro. This is the first track. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And for many um, albums, it's the first three tracks, but it's right. you know, for this album, it's the first track. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, and you get a good sense as well of Aaron's, well, his lyrics. There's some great lyrics in this. Pour yourself into me. I love that. Yeah. Um, uh, but it also shows off his phrasing and the space that he leaves around the words. They said, they, we've talked about this before, this notion of taste and... He doesn't cram things in. He lets the words, even though there are a lot of lyrics in this song and in many of their songs, but he doesn't rush anything. He lets the words hang and breathe like poetry. Yeah, my favorite line in the song is, your beauty took the strength from me. Mm, Yes. I like, uh, what danger in such an adorer. Right. (laughs) Who phrases things like that, you know? Well, there's your answer. Poets. Poets Exactly. And to go back to what we talked about before (laughs) in terms of like pretension and stuff like that, like this, the you're going this song will give you a very clear indication of lyrically where yeah. this album is coming from 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then it, it fades, actually, um, unusually for uh, a My Down Bride song, actually. It fades. Uh, and then the next track is track two, Your River. in quiet so it almost does feel like cme was kind of leading into this not like an intro as such but that it was you know almost like a segue i mean it's not they don't fade into one another but it sort of feels like it might because you get you know one fading out and the other one not fading in but it starts with the clean guitar very quiet uh this sort of quasi medieval uh guitar which i believe is uh, i figured this out once and it's done by uh, finger plucking two strings at once. It's so funny that you say that because my note was interesting guitar intro, deliberate plucking of the strings feels yes. like the notes are being pulled. Very sort yes. of morose. Um, but medieval is a good way to to sort of throw that on there too. But you can you can hear and feel how the notes are being played on the strings, which I think can only happen when something is as methodical as this is. You know what I mean? Right. Like, it's so deliberate. Uh, yeah, it's confident, yeah. It's, yeah. That, it's, it's that lovely confidence that comes from being young and arrogant, basically. <laughs> right. But, it, but, it's, but it's so clear that, this, yes. that these notes are being played in a very specific way, in a very um, well, and again, minimal, deliberate you know, way. There aren't many notes. Uh, like I say, I learned to play this, and it's only like four notes or something, but because of the sliding between them and because yeah. they're played simultaneously on two strings at once, it's uh, well, it's a bit like the edge, you know, in, in U2 or something. It's like really, really simple playing, but with a few tricks and effects, it sounds more sort of interesting and complex than it is. Sure. Um, and again, a song that plays with expectations because you have that lovely clean intro that lasts for over a minute, uh, and then in come the distorted guitars and the drums, yep. and you think, "Ah, oh, okay, here we go." And it gets real sludgy. And then, and then there's no vocals. Yep. <laughs> this I, this song goes through six different riff sequences over four minutes before you hear any vocals. And I, I love. I mean, when your song's ten minutes long, of course, you know you have the freedom to do that. You, but yeah, I you love can. that. I love the restraint that that shows. It's like, no, we're just going to riff for a bit. And these are all great riffs. That's the thing as well. They are all really great riffs. And it's like, no, we're just going to basically play every riff we've got in the song by itself for four minutes, and then we'll start all over again and bring in the vocals. 
Yeah, and just how it you know picks up tempo at one point. You've got you've got those sliding notes. Like they're they're doing a lot of different things, and they're constantly going against your expectations. Yeah, exactly. Like and the, yes, you're, that- you never you'll never guess where the song <laughs> is going next. You know what right. I mean? Which again, I think first listen through can be a frustrating experience mm-hmm. because your your brain is trained to find the path that this song ha- at least my brain is from the metal that I've listened to over the years right. my my brain is trying to chart the path of this song and this and it this twists album and turns does not and... allow you to chart it you know yeah. what i mean like it, it, you have to just absorb it and well, then the and second all the tempo time through, changes as well exactly yeah you you uh, you know the second time through you now that your brain has sort of charted it at that point, but you 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 can't skip ahead in these songs because you don't no. know where they're going. No, I mean there's more tempo changes in the first four minutes of this than in most Marillion songs. I mean, right? <laughs> you know, it's it's like prog doom almost. And you can't get the other thing I would say about this song and and certainly other songs on this album too is that you can't hang your hat on any one riff because it's not going to be there for that long. You know what I mean? Like they because they change things. Because they change things around, like you can't right. get necessarily stuck on one part of a song because that's not necessarily indicative of the rest of the song. You just ha- kind of have to accept how they come and go through different tempo changes and riffs and stuff like that. Yeah, that is something that they, uh, you know, you get less of it as they sort of progressed and, you know, later albums where they would find a riff and nail it down for a bit longer. Uh-huh. Rather than constantly chopping and changing, and that you know, I mean, I'm not saying one is better than the other necessarily, but that is something that they uh, didn't do, don't do quite as much now. Um, they still do it, but yeah, you you will often get more chance to get into a riff uh, with their more recent stuff than you did in the, as you say, with these first albums. And it's crazy because, of course, they're so slow, right? Like you know, I mean, they have the occasional fast passage, but most of this album. And most of their riffs are really quite slow, and yet they still only play them for like eight bars, and then bang onto another one. Right. Um, and uh, this is a track. That, this is a standout track for uh, Rick's drumming. Uh, I think the the crazy fills that he puts in at the end of almost every line, and some amazing cymbal work. Um, and and I mean the music is great and everything as well. It all kind of clicks on this track. This feels like a really sort of uh, you know, a track where everything came together. But Rick's drumming really stands out here, part, partly because, of course, it's the first track where you hear it. Right. But it's one of the tracks that I, I mean, I will happily air drum along to. <laughs> and it makes also, you pay attention to the fact that the drums are going to be a very important yes. piece of what you're going to hear moving forward. And so... And, 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 that they, and, then, and that this isn't standard rock drumming. Right. You know, that this is not a style of drumming that you are necessarily familiar with again much like the rest of the music you can't predict where the drums are gonna go right and i also uh i i like aaron's vocals his vocal line on this because it it's uh he does this sometimes he follows the lead guitar uh or the lead guitar follows his melody i mean who who knows which came first um but he has a tone to his clean voice that when he does that it often sounds really good it just sort of works really well with the guitar tone. Yeah, and he gets growly as this song sort of goes on, but I I do like his clean, you know, sometimes even spoken, yeah. you know, vocals, but I do I prefer that style, but I like the way that he will bounce back and forth between them. Yeah, this well this is the first album where he did that. Uh, oh, interesting. Previous, 
previously he'd he'd been all growling all the time um and then on this album yeah it's you know it's a mixture and actually you know more clean than growls um, I, I actually think that given the pace of this album that the spoken word and the clean vocal stuff actually accentuates it better than some of the growly stuff you know mm. but then again i prefer that type of of um of vocals anyways but i i think it actually and maybe that's counterintuitive. I think it lends more weight in some areas than than sort of the the rougher vocals. No, I agree. I agree because again, it's it sort of you know it feels more emotional, um, and it does. I think if it had been all growling all the way through, it just would have been a bit tiresome. Yeah, it blends together too much. Yeah, yeah. Um, and some great lyrics in this as well. Uh, you know, it's sad that in our blindness we gathered thorns for flowers. <laughs> and I, I i pulled lyrics from every song too so mine the one that i pulled here was um your bloodied body is what i cling to in powerful rain they laid their heads to die let your dark thirsty eyes drink deep the sights of me yeah yeah i love that well that actually comes just before the line that i just quoted as well yeah um and and at the end uh, when he is growling your kin piled thick around you and, and i read hamlet in high school Yep. Uh, for my A levels, and I can't. Every time I hear that line, I think, "Yeah, is that about? Is that a Hamlet reference?" Yeah, <laughs> it kind of feels like it, you know, like a Shakespearean tragedy, right? Uh, and yeah, I don't yeah, think that's say, that far off from where these guys are at for sure. Well, exactly, yeah. Knowing that Aaron is, I mean, there's uh, like one of the later albums. They even use a, a stanza from a Shakespeare poem, you know, as lyrics to uh, to a song. So yeah, it, <laughs> it's not which at I think all. is cool because it can put you of a it can put you in a mood to experience something like that you know what i mean like it yeah that's kind of cool no absolutely absolutely it really sort of as you say it kind of centers where the band are at and you know what sort of milieu they're working in and Um, i think music can do that in a way that uh you know the written word sometimes can't as effectively you know Mm. if you're reading um if you're reading gothic fiction or you're reading something dark and emotional like it, it being able to accompany that or prepare yourself for that with some music that puts you in that frame of mind i think will help deepen the other experience you know i I agree completely yeah um and i love the i love the ending to this track because you we get this this really long protracted intro like i say four minutes with no vocals whatsoever and then at the end we get just it just stops just this abrupt hard stop ending and on an unresolved chord change as well which just leaves you kind of hanging I love it. <laughs> um, and then that takes us into track three, The Songless Bird. Oh, 
Yep, a breezy seven-minute song. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, short <laughs> short song. <laughs> um, but, and again, the intro, what an intro, the howling guitars on this with like these squealing pinch harmonics. Uh, and again, Rick's drumming rolling underneath. Yes, there's definitely, the, yeah, the, exactly. Those pinch harmonics stood out to me for sure. And then, of course, the, the drums for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, that that intro gets me. This is absolutely a one where you know, unless I'm driving or something, if this comes on and starts playing, I have to like air drum along because I just love it. Yep, <laughs> just grabs you. Uh, and again, like some fantastic uh, lyrics and vocal work from Aaron. That look at your God, look at the way He stands. That oh, such contempt in <laughs> that line. I love it. The one I pulled was, I have a thousand forms uninjured by your tongue. I'm working yeah. to ensnare you. Couple your name with cruelty. Yep, yep. Uh, yeah, that's a growling phrase, isn't it? Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, and then after, and you get all that this sort of ferocity and speed uh, at the start of this track, and then at two minutes 50, I think it, I've got noted here, they just drop it all out. Right. Clean guitar and violin, slow it all down, and then build it all back up again towards the climax. I mean, there's still four minutes to go, but nevertheless. <laughs> and I think this was the song where I realized that that's their, that's their approach. And so as I got down, like I wasn't noting the, the times in the songs that everything sort of changed. But as I started going farther into my notes, like you'll hear on the next few songs, I did start noting like, when the songs completely changed direction because it was this song that finally brought it home for me that this is this is what I should be expecting is that it's right. going to take some twists and turns is that they're going to drop out and then come back is that they're going to sort of knock everything down and then build it back up again um which is sort of where it clicked for me yeah well and that's why I keep using the phrase the word dramatic to describe uh, their music and you know some other bands and that's one element of it is that it's it's almost structured like a story where, you know, you've got the peaks and valleys and yeah. as you know, as, as you know, as well as me writing fiction, you have to have, you can't have everything at a hundred percent intensity all the time because it just gets dull. You need to have the peaks and valleys of tension and emotion throughout a story. And it feels like, you know, cause that's what creates good drama. And so that's why I use the word dramatic to describe music like this, because it feels like they're following not the same structure, but, you know, using that idea of build it up, then have a, you know, a nice quiet valley bit and then build up to another peak. And, and it creates drama within the music. Yeah. I made a general note uh, when I was thinking about this thing is like that each song is like a soundtrack to a, to a short film. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, or, or, a, or a story because they're, they're all these sort of long journeys in and of themselves. And each yep. one of them has a distinct feel to it. Absolutely. Uh, and again, and another great ending for this one. They repeat the intro with, again, like Rick's wonderful drumming and all those fills rolling underneath. And then another abrupt end, just bang, comes to an end. Yep. Um, and goes straight into the snow in my hand. Dark. Love. 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 
which my note here was interesting riff to open and then it slows down to a crawl. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful twin-tracked guitars. That's not, uh, I don't believe anyway, that that's Andrew double-tracking himself. I believe Uh that's Andrew and Kelvin playing together um, because I've seen them do it live. And although it was, I think Hamish was the guitarist when I saw them the first time. Um, But yeah, that's two guitarists playing the same thing at the same time. More like a sort of a Judas Priest. Sure. Rather rather than a single guitarist, you know, double-tracking himself. Um, and it just sounds great. More amazing drums from Rick. And it's all so slow when it, as you say, it slows down and it is so slow. It is super slow. Like, like when I say it slows down to a crawl, it literally slows down to a crawl and in yeah. and, and it, which is impressive because that's not easy to do. Right. You know what it I mean? feels like, like it might fall apart at any it, moment, doesn't it, it? And this goes back to what we talked about before with the rhythm section really needing to hold it together. And certainly the drums do two things here. No, A, they drive home the riffs very well in the song, I think, but also keeps it together because it is going so slowly. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a testament to Rick's drumming and to Aid's you know, bass playing. As I say, the bass does pretty much just follow the guitar on this album. Sure. But nevertheless, it still has to be everything has to be tight and you get some clean to, singing in the song and you yep. and then there are it definitely gets more up tempo at times as well so it's not all but they play with that you know they right, play with right. with that well, tempo and, and the fast riff in this one i think might be the first instance on this album where you get double picking you know that sort of diddle little 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 style of of chugging um i think that might be the first time this happens on this album but then you get those lovely sort of open or not open but cleaner notes like non-par muted notes at the end of yep. the riff as well and in um, terms of like traditional metal i would say this is one of the heavier songs on the album yes you know definitely. just in terms of like what 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 you might picture in your head as metal when you when we say that but uh in another ray of sunshine lyric here that i'm going to read that i pulled uh from the song i had watched the snow all day falling it never lets up all day falling I lifted my voice and wept out loud. So this is life. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the final verse. Although yeah, I call you, that you, Sunday morning. <laughs> well, it's the he does live in the north. Believe yeah. me, that's not that unusual around here. Um, but the funny thing is that, and you probably won't have realised this because you're not, you know, obsessively familiar with the album like me. But that final line, "So this is life," he doesn't actually say that. Oh, interesting. He doesn't, a- doesn't actually say that. And it's on the lyric sheet. It's like, because I've got the album, you know, it's on the lyric sheet, but he never actually says it. Uh, you know, I always wondered what that was about. <laughs> um, but you, you're right. This is, there are some fantastic riffs in this song. It has some of the best just standalone riffs on the album. Um, it doesn't quite have the dynamics of the others. I mean, I think every track on this album is a classic, but if I had to choose, you know, sort of my least favourite, it would probably actually be this because it feels a bit flatter than And uh, it's probably some something that's more like other things. You know what I mean? Like it, it, yeah, it's, yeah. it's less in the scope of what these guys are doing. It's less unique than yeah. the other songs on the album. So, it, so if there is one that, uh, not that there's a traditional you know, metal, so to speak of, but this, this is one that is less, it's doing less differently than all of the other songs are doing. I would say that's fair. Yeah. I mean, like I say, I still love it. I do. I genuinely think there is not a bad track on this album. I mean, there's only six of them, <laughs> but, 
but I do think there isn't a bad track on this album. Um, but yeah, if you sort of put a gun to my head, I would say that this is probably, you know, yeah, my least favourite on the album. But the actual standalone riffs, I think, are just absolutely awesome. Sure, you know, I do dig the riffs on this song, for sure. Re- really showcases Andrew's ability to write a great riff. And that's been the story of My Dying Bride's entire career. Even on some of the albums which I'm not as keen on, the individual riffs are often superb. You know, you look at the combination of notes and chords and the way they're played and the way they're put together. And a lot of My Dying Bride songs have this wonderful ability to almost feel sort of natural and inevitable, and yet only once you've heard them. Do, yep. do you understand what I mean? Yeah. Like Once you've heard it, you're like, oh yeah, yeah, that's like, almost sounds like something I've heard before. But until that point, until you actually heard it, you would never have imagined it in your life. Right. And I, I, yeah, Andrew's really, really good at writing. I assume it's Andrew that writes like, you know, most of the music, I believe it is. Uh, yeah, some fantastic riffs like that. Um, and then track four, The Crown of Sympathy. See the light and feel my warm desire. This is, sorry, track five, my mistake. There are seven tracks on the album, not six. Um, This is, for me, the piece de resistance of the album. This, for me, is the centrepiece of Turn Loose the Swans, and it is, to my ears, the definitive My Dying Bride track. Like, if I had to play one song, and admittedly it is 12 minutes, it's this length of three songs, but if I had to play one song to people to sort of, you know, say, what is My Dying Bride? This is the track that I would play. And this was the track where I started writing down certain moments in time in the song right. as I was sort of taking notes on them. Uh, the way it opens, just starting with Aaron's voice with some weird, subtle, I've never quite worked out what it is, some weird, subtle processing on it, like uh-huh. maybe a strange chorus or a reverse delay or something. I'm not not quite sure, but that it's just a cappella, and then bang, in come the guitars and drums straight off yep but with that lovely sort of 10 minutes of quiet sorry 10 seconds of quiet to start with uh and it just rolls on from there and i I mean you know talk about lyrics i could quote just about every single 
line of lyrics in this song. <laughs> I, lo- I love them all. And the layering of the vocals too, you know, the, the sort of clean vocals and the spoken lyrics kind of layered on top of one another. Uh, in, in some places. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, this is another case where Aaron's vocal melody follows the guitar lead melody. And the drums uh, are stellar on this song too. Yes. Like, yes. like just, uh, some interesting fills and, and roles and stuff like that. Well, and of course, uh, the middle section. Um, yeah, I mean, before we get to that, <laughs> there's a riff that comes in uh, probably about sort of two minutes in. Great riff. That was my voicemail message for quite a oh, long nice. time. <laughs> well, you picked a good riff. That's a great riff. I literally like got that riff and like sampled it so that it would loop eternally. And that was that was my voicemail. There was no, I didn't speak or anything. I just held my phone up to the speakers. Nice. <laughs> and that was my voicemail. That's how much I love that riff. Um, and uh, and yeah, again, that was some fantastic lyrics. No person in everything can shine. Yet shine you did for the world to see. Um, I'd fall before the throne of God. Take from me this crown of sympathy. It's wonderful, wonderful poetic lyrics. I love it. Yeah, I pulled, uh, I'd fallen before, but it never hurt like this. Don't leave me here to crawl through the mire. Mm, Yes. (laughs) Oh, and when I was young, the sun did burn my face. I let its love and warmth wash over me. Yeah. And uh, come dress me with your body. What a fantastic line. What a great lyric. Come dress me with your body. Oh. Yeah, uh, these anyway. guys are a good band for writers to nerd out about. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that. They definitely have that. Yeah. And then straight after that line, actually, you get uh, the line, I dreamt of a dead child in my sleep. And Aaron's voice kind of pitches down, almost like a guitar string bend or something. And it's it's a really there's a bit of extra echo and reverb on there, and it's a beautiful. It sounds almost like he's kind of falling into darkness or something. Yeah, I love that. Uh, that's really sort of you know it's not complicated. It's not technically complex or anything, but it is so atmospheric and effective uh, that it really you know just yeah puts across the atmosphere of the song, and then and then it all drops out, and we are. We're f- at this point, we're five minutes in. We still five minutes have seven and minutes to go. Seconds. The <laughs> yeah. keyboard sort of cleans the slate of the entire song. Yeah, we still have seven minutes to go. Yep, and the whole thing just drops out, goes to this incredibly slow tempo uh-huh. with chiming bells and drums that sound like they were Symbols. recorded in a cathedral yep. and a very methodical snare. Yep, and yep. really slow, sparse style. It's like wow. Okay, 
you know, and a bit of choir. This is that whole thing I was saying earlier about like knocking everything down and and sort of building it back up again because it really does at that point in the song just like if this was a a building of blocks, it just knocks them all down and then starts putting them back together again. Yeah, with the bells and the drums and more like again, sort of quasi medieval sounding trumpet blasts as well. Love the trumpets, big fan of the uh, obviously they're the sort of synth trumpets, but right, uh, right, but awesome, great effect. But they sound they sound like a bugler calling like court yes. to order or something. You know, yep. what I mean? absolutely. <laughs> you just imagine knights marching through a castle or something. Well, um, and, and and the violins in this song, just that screech. Um, yes, that violin screech is it. It's uh, it almost sounds like something out of a horror movie, but it, it just it's like this desperate sort of frantic screeching set of notes. You know, yeah, it, it's like three or four notes played really right. fast, it's almost like, as if. Yeah, it almost sounds as if he's like dropped the violin or something. Right. Um, but yeah, yeah, works so well. And that again comes like in amongst these heavy riffing guitars as yep. well. Um It almost answers the riff in the Yeah. Or extends yeah, like it, a, you know what I mean? Like a response, like Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And Aaron's singing when it does drop out is so low and so slow. Um again, measured deliberate pace you know patience and taste so good yep um uh and then f- with four minutes left he sings like the last lyrics like for deadened icy pain covers all the earth cold cold and and you know if you're reading along with the lyric sheet you're like oh, yeah, that's the last lyrics and there's four minutes left what's going right. on uh, but then the riff comes back and you get that violin and the chorus repeats yep and then with uh, two and a half minutes left. Suddenly, a brand new riff. A whole epic coda with this soaring uh guitar line it feels like darkness is falling just oh, it, absolute perfection i could listen to this track all day long yeah well because this track has sort of it's like an album in and of itself you know what right. i mean it's a 12 yeah. minute song where and this is kind of what goes back to like that these these um songs are almost soundtracks to to films in and of themselves or or the you know, musically telling a story in and of themselves. Like this is a 12 minute song that gives you a lot of different experiences over the course of that 12 minutes, even towards the very last couple of minutes of the song. Yeah. Yeah. It's got everything in it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's why, as I say, if I was going to pick a song and say, listen to this and you will get this band, this is the song I would pick. Yeah. I think you're right. I think this would be a good, uh, it would be a good song, but over the course of 12 minutes, people would have a pretty darn good idea of what they're in for. Right. <laughs> um, and then uh, the title track, Turn Loose the Swans.
is a great song. I really like this song. It is, isn't it? And after such, you get such a beautiful soaring kind of end to the crown of sympathy and then you get a really harsh sort of ugly sounding guitar to introduce this the title track of the album i think it might also be the uh lowest tuned track on the album like this is you know we're talking this is down to c at least and maybe even lower and i think it's the lowest tuned one on the album and yeah, it's a really good contrast. Well, you kind of have like the individual notes and then the violins and then the other guitar kicks in like. Yeah, yeah. And uh, straight in with growling vocals on this yep. one as well. You know, it doesn't sort of no building up and leading you in with uh, clean vocals straight in with the growls. I kind of, I've always felt like if Crown of Sympathy is like a funeral procession, yep. then this is the dirge. This is This is just the grinding dirge that follows. Yeah, it's um, very methodical. And it but it also to me uh, one of the notes I made on this song is that it felt the most epic to me of the songs oh, really? on the album. Yeah, like oh, okay, it, it, it has a very epic feel to me. Um Now for me that's Crown of Sympathy. That's one of the reasons I love it is that that's the song that feels like the most epic to me. Well, um, it, so so I mean at 4 minutes into this 10 minute song, it starts raining. Um, you can hear the rain sound effects yeah. in the background, yeah. and I said I made a note. Four oh three, rain comes in as if things weren't dark enough, uh, <laughs> and then you sort of have the echoing, the riff in the background over the chugging of the guitars. Um, at five thirty seven, the violins sort of take the lead, and and that to me was my favorite part of the song, right? Because right. I thought it was both sort of it was building, but it was also mournful at the same time. Yeah, it's kind of this weird mix of emotions. Um, yeah, the guitar and violin that sort of comes in, as you say, for like about the last third of this track is just—it's a beautiful section. It is really beautiful, and then some of the lyrics too, like "you—you you are sweet and fine to listen to." Long tresses about your neck, yet much is false. Mm. This mighty evening, I've seen no face. This is crushing me. My quill—it aches. Yeah, and that's not a quill he's talking no, about. No, exactly. You know? <laughs> yeah, the, the, but but that whole escalating and mournful thing is it's it's longing. You know, yes, that, that's that's what you're getting. In uh, terms this of- whole song is just about longing. Yeah, yes, and yet, and yet, this is one of the things I a contrast that I love about this song. Like all of the other songs on this album are mostly sad. You know, they're they're melancholic. They are sort of mournful, sad reflective songs with flashes of sort of you know aggression and anger right but mostly sad and melancholic and yet this song musically anyway is just feels really angry and sort of frustrated and urgent all the way through like every piece of music in this song is yeah just feels angry and yet the lyrics are very contemplative and I mean, it's like under- this internal struggle, you know, like it's right. like this, this restrained sort of um, fighting against that restraint, again, with the, with the whole longing thing. And it does mm. have that sense of urgency to it, but it's a 10-minute song. Right. You know what I mean? So it's, it's, uh, that's quite a feat to make a song sound <laughs> urgent when, when it's, it's 10, 10 minutes, minutes long. long. You know yep. what I mean? Yep. And as I say, that's what this band pulls off better than anybody else, in my opinion. They're just so, so good at that. But it's um, good that this song comes where it does on the album, because again, for someone like me who is not well-versed in this genre, by the time you get to the song, you're ready for it. Mm-hmm. And I think it takes you, like, it, 
I wouldn't want this to be the first or second song on the album because I don't think you're ready for that at that point. You know what I mean? I think that I like the way the songs are laid out on this album because mm-hmm. I feel like by the time you get to a particular song, what has come before has sort of prepared you for what the next piece is. That's a really good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very well put. Um, and I, I mean, this particular track as well, I love that. I mean, it once again, it ends with the same riff as we began coming full circle. Um, yep. But then it has another epic coda, another soaring coda, new riff at the end. And you get the feedback. You get Rick's drums going wild. Like this is the climax. This is, you know, the bit of the motorhead gig where Mickey's on his feet, like crashing the cymbals and they're like just waiting for everything to go batter down at the end, you know? That's exactly what the end of this song is it feels like the end of a gig yep and i think it's perfectly placed on the album for that because then of course you get the final track black god is like an epilogue i'm so glad you said that that's exactly how i've always felt about this is yeah. that it doesn't it's it's like the uh, it's like the the epilogue because you're absolutely right the song before is like the thank you and good night yes <laughs> you know like exactly. you've been great you know <laughs> thank you good night drive safely on the way home good night yeah not yeah, that this exactly. is like walk off music but it is sort of the uh it does feel like an epilogue to what you've heard before yep. which again makes sense because this is it, is this the shortest song on the album uh, I think it is actually. I think yes. it might be the yes. shortest song in the album. So it so it does, um, in about half the time as most of the other songs, sort of brings everything to a close. And it's a haunting, I think, like a haunting um, song. It's still five minutes long, right? It's not <laughs> but it short the, by by but it is the metal stretch of the, the imagination. Album. Yeah, right. <laughs> but the, yeah, I love that. Even though this is another track with no guitar, no drums, just keyboard pads, piano. Uh, and the addition of female vocals for the first time on the album. Yes. It, it nevertheless, Beautiful, it, by the way. It, yes. Uh, performed by somebody called Xena. No idea who that is. Um, it, does, it doesn't feel like a parallel to Siami, even though it would be obvious to say, oh, well, click, you know, they started with a track like this, they're going to end with a track like this. But it does feel more like an epilogue than a sort of, oh, we'll, we'll bookend the album with these tracks. Sure. Um, 
so yeah, I'm I'm really glad that it came across that way to you as well because you know you're never sure because I'm so familiar with this album. I've listened to it so much for so many years that you start to wonder if you know you're just imagining things. <laughs> no, I definitely felt like it, it felt like an epilogue and also one that sort of ends, even though it's a haunting tune. Like it felt more. It doesn't wallow like a lot of the other songs. You know what I mean? Like it. Mm. it um, Although it is much sadder than CME, it, I think it does. But it's it it's very soulful to you know what i mean like I, it's hard to explain it but i i definitely um it, it's one of my favorite songs on the album for sure oh i love it yeah yeah and uh the lyrics incidentally are not aaron's lyrics oh oh that's they, right they're from a poem they're from a poem yeah, yeah. They, it is the last uh two stanzas the last eight lines of a poem by an 18th century scottish poet called william hamilton and the poem was called "Ah, the Shepherd's Mournful Fate," and it's yep. basically a you know a sort of a long a poem of longing and unrequited love, yep. which William Hamilton kind of specialised in. So it doesn't surprise me that Aaron's familiar with his work. I remember reading that now. But yeah, they literally—it's just that the, this—it's the last eight lines uh, of that poem, sung uh, by Zena and spoken by Aaron over this track. It's um, beautifully executed. Like it. Oh, it, it is. is yeah. uh, it is a haunting song and it's a beautiful song at the same time. And, and again, like we talked about before, heavy, you know? Yes. Yes, exactly. Well, I mean, the fact that it's called Black God. I mean. Right, right. Sure. <laughs> if the title didn't give it away. Yeah. Um, but yeah, again, this is, um, they did a similar thing, as I said before, on Like Gods of the Sun, uh, an album, two or three albums after this. Uh, on the final track of that album, which is called For My Fallen Angel, the final verse of that track is taken from Shakespeare's poem, Venus and Adonis. So, you know, there's a bit of a theme <laughs> running through these. For sure. Um, and that's it. And that's the end of the album. Just seven tracks, as I say, but like, but an hour's worth of listening. Oh, um, and, and it feels like e- even though there's only seven tracks and even though it is a full hour of listening, you're, there's a lot more in that to unpack. Like this is, yeah. again... We've talked about my whole thing about you got to listen three times at least to an album, but this this is one of those albums that certainly rewards multiple listens. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, like I said, I've you know this album is uh, twenty two years old now. Yep. Um, and I listen. I still listen to it a lot. You know, I've listened to it hundreds and hundreds of times in those twenty two years, and I never ever get tired of it because there is so much in it. Uh, and so much to sort of grab you and so many riff changes and tempo changes and so much depth in all of the songs, even in the quieter songs, even in Black God and CME, there is so much depth in them um, that you you can listen to it again and again and again, which is actually why it was a little bit disappointing. They, uh, they released a 20th anniversary a couple of years ago, re-release of this album where they remixed it. Uh, they didn't, they did a good job of the remixing. It was just more sort of remastering, you know, it wasn't, they didn't go crazy. Um, but they also had a bonus CD with a commentary from Aaron and Andrew, where they literally listened to the record. And uh-huh. as they were listening, you know, they sort of talked about the recording of it and, you know, reminisced about it. Um, unfortunately, because it was like 20 years later it wasn't as insightful as you might have hoped yeah i find (laughs) that sometimes too when i when i listen when i see like you know john carpenter talking about some of his old movies and stuff like that there are times where you're you're hoping for something more because you have visited this thing so many times that it's so fresh in your mind and it's kind of a bummer sometimes when you're like oh they don't listen to this every day 
Right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was, uh, there was a lot of, I don't really remember what I was thinking when I wrote this. And you're Um, like, that was the most important line in the history of my life. Like, how do you not remember where you were when you wrote that? Exactly. That is the line that changed everything for me. And they're like, I don't know. I kind of, someone, I overheard it in a conversation. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, it was, it was fun, you know, and I yeah. bought it to support the band and it was, it was a lovely package as well. Sure. It had like extra artwork and sort of behind the scenes photo. Cause all the cover, this album came in three different covers, according to format. Um, you had the, uh, the praying arms on the CD cover, which is the version I have. The vinyl came with a black and white photo of a swan. Um, and the cassette I think had a different photo, black and white photo of a different swan, or maybe the different photo of the same swan. I'm not sure. Um, and the the anniversary release in the booklet had sort of behind the scenes bits of how those photos were taken because Aaron does a lot of the band's photography and a lot of the band's artwork, and he designed the covers for all the releases of this album. Um, and uh, it turns out the prayer because it's you can tell that it's a negative photo, the praying arms, the praying hands. Yeah. Uh, and I could never quite work out exactly what it was. And it turns out that it's a sort of, you know, Virgin Mary statuette that he dripped black candle wax over. Oh. Took a photo of under like red light and then made, printed the negative of it. So it's a really strange you know, it looks really, it, I mean, it looks great, but that's why it looks really odd because what should be black is white and yet other things that you think, okay, well, it's a negative, so that should be white, but then it's black and yeah. <laughs> I was uh, I was very happy that it, it didn't quite ruin the magic. You know, I was worried that seeing sure. behind the scenes would ruin, spoil a bit of it for yeah, me. Yeah, that actually, does happen sometimes, but I, but I am such a sucker for those things that I can- Me too. Even me if too. it does, I have to, because- I mean, obviously, we just spent two hours talking about this album, but like for me, one of the th- things I love about this podcast and, and about this kind of stuff in general, it, I'm I'm a such a process nerd. Like right, I need same to here, know yeah. how it was made, what went into it. Like I'm, I always want to get into that. Yeah, but as I said, seeing how ingenious it was to create that photo, I think was what helped me not sort of not spoil it in my mind because even though I now know exactly what it was. It was, you know, it was so well done to be deliberately a bit strange and off-putting. Right, you have even that, more respect for it. Right, that I appreciated exactly, exactly. Uh, for no budget. I mean, yeah, these guys had zero budget when they were starting out. Yep. Um, the only other thing I want to say about this album is if you ever hear a doom metal fan say or refer to Unleash the Geese, this is the album they're talking about because that was the nickname that it gained in Kerrang!, for a while, whenever they were talking about this album, instead of calling it Turn Loose the Swans, they would call it Unleash the Geese. I like that. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Which I thought was very funny. So, uh, like I say, one of my favourite albums ever. Literally changed my life. So I'm, I'm glad that you enjoyed it. Would you listen to more? I think I would check out some of their other stuff. Like, I, I can honestly say, you know, in terms of the both the Paradise Loss and this, like, this is this is far... This is a a stretch for me in terms right. of what this is a whole nother world. It is, and, and and it's not one that I immediately, you know, if I'm flipping through albums that I want to listen to or something like that, that I would immediately go for. But I'm enjoying the education piece of this, and I'm mm-hmm. developing more of a 
understanding and respect for this genre of metal with each album that we go through. So it cool. makes me want to explore more of it. But I think what what is cool for me at this point in time is I sort of have a guide for that. So right, like right. you're you're telling me, well, let's look at this one. Let's look at this one. Let's look at this one. So I'm kind of I'm kind of going along for the ride with that, and I'm enjoying uh-huh. that so far. So this this was an album again. At first listen, I was kind of like, yeah, this is not really my thing. But the more that I dug into it, and the more that I started to see what their approach was, and again, what how I had to sort of shift my expectations of what immediately comes to mind when when I hear the word metal. That's that's been a fun exercise for me. Awesome. Well, and I, I hope it's been the same for, because I'm sure most of our listeners have probably never heard this album either. So I hope that it's had a similar effect on them. One, uh, what I will say for knowing you and your tastes as I do, um, I would suggest that you listen to, uh, I think it was two albums after this. I've mentioned it already on the show called Like Gods of the Sun. Okay. Uh, which is a more, I'm I mean, writing it's, that still, down. it's still very much them, but it's a more straight ahead album, if you like. The songs are a bit shorter. It is more metal. I don't think there's any violin on it. Um, it's, you know, I that may be an easier album for somebody like you to pick out and say, oh yeah, I want to listen to this. But I'm glad that's to- not the album that you chose because I think that it would be easier for me to not get into this genre of right, music right. if we were listening to the things that are close enough to other stuff that I listen to. In some ways, even though it's more of a challenge to listen to um, some of this stuff, it's better because it's it's it what's forces different you to about approach it, it with exactly. fresh eyes it's what's yeah. different about it that that is and that's cool like yeah. I, I don't know if we've talked about this or not on the show but um there is the documentary series on vh1 classic if you have never seen metal evolution and you can go to vh1.com and and uh under shows there's this metal evolution series there was a uh, there was a documentary that was done a few years ago, and what is the guy's name behind it? Um, but it was like a one and done. It was like a metal hedge journey, and oh, right. and it was really good. Uh, I'm gonna get the name of the guy because he's fantastic. Uh, let's see. Oh, his name is uh, Sam Dunn. So Sam Dunn back in 2005 made an hour and a half documentary called Metal, A Headbanger's Journey. And it is a fascinating look at everything from the new wave of British heavy metal to power metal to new metal to glam metal to thrash, black metal, death metal, the whole thing. And he sort of went into all these subgenres of metal and he approached it from an anthropology standpoint and really trying to understand what what is what are all these genres of metal? Where do they come from? What are they influenced from? How did each one of them develop? And so that was so well received that VH1 actually gave him a series, and it's like twelve episodes or something like that. And it was called Metal Evolution. And what that series is on VH1 Classic is essentially a much larger and more in-depth look at all of the different subgenres of metal, and oh, it wow. is phenomenal. I and I know you can this. get it on yeah. DVD, but I'm sure you can watch it online. It's called Metal Evolution, and it's fantastic. The guy's name is Sam Dunn, but he, what I love about him is he so respectfully treats every genre of metal that I think you will be a better metal fan if you watch this series. Like for anybody listening to this show, like if you are locked into your particular type of metal that you really like and you're and, and maybe struggle with other aspects of metal... This guy's approach 
is so respectful and so interesting and fascinating on each genre of metal that you will come out of this series with a much more well-rounded understanding of metal overall. And it's the best, by far, the best documentary I've ever seen about metal. And any time that it's on, when I'm watching VH1 Classic, no matter what episode, I will watch it. But the cool thing about the series is that he takes one episode for every genre. So he'll really dive deep for a whole episode. And he'll travel across the world. He'll go to live shows. He'll travel and speak to um, some of the people that are considered to be um, you know, godfathers of the certain genre of metal and stuff like that. And so it's full of wonderful interviews, awesome commentary, and just a real in-depth examination. Um, but that's kind of my headspace as we do this show, is I want to learn about things that are outside of my wheelhouse. Even though sure. when it's my turn to pick, we get to celebrate things that are sort of inside my wheelhouse. But I think as the show goes on, we're both sort of stretching anyways. But but um oh, but I'm loving yeah. getting yeah. introduced to, you know, the albums that you grew up with loving and are really important to you. Um it's just really cool. I love that aspect of the show. Yeah, me too. Me too. All right. And so speaking of that, uh what are we going to talk about next week? Well if you want an album that pretty much encapsulates everything that I love about heavy metal, this would be one of them. And this is easily another one of my top 20 albums of all time. We are going to talk about the 1983 classic Holy Diver from Dio. Oh, wow. (laughs) So, and I will say right off the bat that the longest song on this album is five minutes and 51 seconds. And that is the title track. So, Uh, it, it is, uh, it's quite a change of pace from the album that we just listened to, but man, and I feel like when people talk about Dio, they often go to the last in line as the album that, you know, Dio as a band, you know, that they talk about a lot, but Holy Diver, man, what an amazing album. I just listened to this again yesterday and that sort of solidified in my mind that I wanted to talk about this one so uh, and there's a cool. lot of good stuff to dig into with this album too so yep so it's dio the 1983 album holy diver awesome well i actually am not i've never heard that that album holy crap i'm not i've heard the track i'm very familiar with holy sure. diver the song but the album i've never listened to uh, and you've probably and heard rainbow in the dark too which is the other single off of this album yeah you'll know it when you hear it because it comes in with a keyboard Right, right. Yeah, when I hear it, I might recognize it. But certainly, you know, as a general thing, no, I'm not familiar with the album at all. And I'm not honestly that familiar with Dio's work, you know, in general. Like, yes, I've heard a few tracks and stuff, and I had great respect for for the man. But uh, I'm not actually that familiar with his work. So that'll be really interesting. I'm very excited. And, And man, the musicianship on this album is on another level. So I'm super excited. And uh, I hope that there's a lot of people who dig this album out there, but I also hope that there's a lot of people who have not heard it, who are going to hear it for the first time. So like me. (laughs) All right. Uh, Okay. We're already running long, so let's uh, cut it there. And yeah, I'm looking forward to that. See you next week. Okay. See you later. You've been listening to Anthony Johnston and Brian Latendry thrash it out. If this is your kind of thing, please spread the word, rate us on iTunes, and support us at patreon.com slash thrashitout. With your help, we can stay completely independent and keep thrashing. 
If you want to get in touch, go to thrashitoutpodcast.com. Thank you and good night.